Hey everybody, this is Brian Zond and welcome to the Word of Life Church Sermon Podcast. I'm glad you're interested in what we have to say as we try to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would ever be so inclined to help us financially, you can do that at wolc.com. Well, good morning, everybody. In-house and online, good morning, one and all. I love Sunday mornings. I have for a long time, I guess. I do. I love Sunday mornings. I'm glad to hear that we're going to have this men's breakfast. I think that's a good thing. I think we had those at some point, and at some point, they, I don't know what happened. They, they got lost, but now they're found, and we found breakfast again. That's great. Amen. All right. Well, during Lent, this is the second Sunday in Lent, During Lent, we are exploring the cross as the wood between the worlds. The cross of Christ is the wood between the worlds. There is the world that was and the world to come. And in between those two worlds is the wood upon which the Son of God was hung. Now this morning, I want us together to look at the cross as a love supreme. In John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says, There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. That is a love supreme. On December 9th, 1964, the great saxophonist, John Coltrane, any John Coltrane fans here? Yeah, you should be. John Coltrane recorded in a single session what would become one of the greatest and most influential jazz recordings of all time. A love supreme. It's uh, 34 minutes long. It has four tracks. Each track is named A Love Supreme, then with a different subtitle. So A Love Supreme, Acknowledgement, then Pursuance, then Resolution, then Psalm. Now... You all know that jazz is not my primary musical muse. It's well documented, I'm a rock guy. But I love this album. I return to this album again and again and again. There's something about it. I have it on vinyl. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't buy vinyl of things I don't really love. I love that album. It's an album that I describe as tracing the ineffable. That is, what cannot be spoken, this music sets forth. And in that sense, I would compare it to something like the work of Johann Sebastian Bach. This is, this is an instrumental piece. There's no, there's no lyrics, no vocals, except at the end of that first piece, 
I love supreme acknowledgement. At the very end, John Coltrane just chants 19 times, a love supreme, a love supreme, a love supreme. Oh, it's a great album. Some of you are going to listen to it today and be blessed. I can tell that right now. And so I'm talking about an instrumental album that moves me spiritually. So we have various methods of communication. And where prose fails, that's where poetry needs to take up the task. That's why in the book, The Wood Between the Worlds, the subtitle is A Poetic Theology of the Cross because occasionally I reach for well, art, you know, poetry, song, film, that sort of thing. But where poetry fails, perhaps then only music will do. We start with prose and that come to the end of that and then we reach for the poetic and then when poetry fails, perhaps only music will do. I said I have the the vinyl copy. I was listening to it and looking at the liner notes. That's what, I, that's what I like about albums. They have liner notes. You can't, you don't get liner notes when you're streaming something. I like the liner notes. In the liner notes, John Coltrane writes, and he writes it in all caps. <laughs> he wants to get your attention. Dear listener, all praise to God. He is gracious and merciful. His way is in love, through which we all are. It is truly a love supreme. Amen. You know, the one thing all mystics seem to have in common is a deep spiritual revelation that God is love. By a mystic, you know what we mean by that. We simply mean, we don't mean anything occultic or, you know, get that out of your thinking. Just what we mean is someone who seeks and at some level attains a direct experience with God. Well, those that do so come away from that experience almost always bearing the same testimony that God is love. That's why Julian of Norwich, her famous book, you know, this great English mystic, is called Revelations of Divine Love because that seems to be if people really encounter God, if they really encounter God, what they come back to report to us is, you know what? It's true. God is love. Amen. So whether it's Jewish mystics, Christian mystics, Sufi mystics, or jazz mystics, they all want to bear witness to a love supreme. And for Christians, a love supreme is intuitively connected to the cross. I mean, for Christians, we look at the cross and we say, there, right there, that is the supreme act of love. You know that Perry and I love very much the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem. It has a hold upon our heart and imagination and we never tire of going there. Perry still loves it even though she broke her wrist there. Back in May. As you enter the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, if you take an immediate right, then there's a staircase and you can climb these, you know, 
stone, marble steps that are worn in deep concaves because of the millions of pilgrims over centuries who've climbed up to the Golgotha Chapel. And to the right of the Golgotha Chapel is a mosaic that depicts Christ being nailed to the cross. Because this is the traditional site of Golgotha, and so right before you focus your attention there, you are reminded that Jesus was nailed to a cross. And so there's this mosaic. And I don't know, it's like maybe 20 years ago, Perry took a close-up detail picture of that, of that mosaic. Not the whole thing, but just a, a close-up. And that's the picture. And I liked it. I thought, you know, this is, this is a, the mosaic. The mosaic's life-size or perhaps bigger. And um, there's the nail-pierced hand of Jesus. And I liked that picture. I thought it was a good picture. And I have, had her share it with me and and I saved it, I saved the file under the name Big Love. And for, for a long time, it was my desktop on my computer. I just called it Big Love. I could have called it Love Hurts. You know that song by Nazareth? Love hurts, love scars, love wounds and mars any heart. That's true. Big love and love hurts. The golden thread in the New Testament is the recurring theme of God's divine love. I mean, the most famous verse in the New Testament, for God so loved. And then we understand that that love of God reaches somehow, somehow, it reaches a crescendo at Calvary. That's where big love is a love supreme, is at Calvary. Here's just a few texts from the epistles and apocalypse that connect the death of Christ, the cross of Christ, with the love of God. Paul writes to the Romans, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember now, we're stressing that the cross is many things. We're looking at the cross during Lent through a theological kaleidoscope. So we look at it and we see a message, we see a meaning, we see an interpretation, but then we adjust our kaleidoscope, our theological perspective, and we see yet another true meaning of the cross. And so the cross means many things. But one of the things the cross is, is God's demonstration of a love supreme. God demonstrates. How do we know God loves us? He demonstrates his love. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Paul, writing to the Galatians, says, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, the faithful love of the Son of God reaches its apex at Calvary, where he lays down his life. John the Beloved writes, 
We know love by this. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. What does love look like? Bring me back big love. What does love look like? It looks like that. We, we know love by this. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's, that's big love. That's, how we, that's what love looks like. That's why, that's why, you know, the song actually is true. Love hurts. Love scars. Love wounds and mars. Any heart. And then John the Revelator writes, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Hmm. What happens on Good Friday is an act of a love supreme. That's God is love and God's demonstration of love reaches the pinnacle, the supreme point that cannot be transcended at what happens at Calvary. So once a symbol of imperial terror, I mean this is what you know, 2,000 years ago, if we were talking about the cross, the only thing that would come to your mind is the brutality of the Roman Empire and how if you challenge their reign, their rule, their dominance, their totalism, if you challenge that, something unspeakably horrible could happen to you. And so the cross was originally a symbol of imperial terror. But all that's changed now. Once a symbol of imperial terror, the cross has become the eternal symbol of divine love. When we look upon the cross today, we don't see an instrument of torture and death. It's there, but that isn't what we see. What we see is the supreme demonstration of God's love. What we see is the length to which God will go to save the world. So, on our platform, we have a series of modern icons that are arranged in a particular order to tell the story of Jesus' ministry, beginning with his baptism and culminating in his resurrection. But right in the center, right in the center, we have the wood between the worlds. We have Christ upon the cross. Now as we look at this image, again, this is one of Ivanka Demchuk's works. As we look at this image, what do we see? Do we see Do we see hate? Do we see pride? Do we see fear? Do we see greed? Do we see anger? Do we see evil? Well, all of those things are what put Jesus on the cross. That's what put Jesus on the cross. But when we actually look at it, that's not what we see. What we see is love. We see love conquering. 
hate and envy and pride and anger and evil. We see love triumphing over that. We see a love supreme. When we speak of the suffering love on display at the cross, we must be careful not to isolate this suffering in the Son of God alone. There are some theologies of the cross that make the mistake of imagining the Father as entirely aloof and impassable to the suffering of the Son. Or worse, there are some atonement theologies that posit the Father as the source of the Son's suffering. This is paganized soteriology at its worst. The Father is not the one who inflicts pain and suffering upon the Son. To imagine the Father as the one inflicting pain upon the Son is to import an unspeakable violence into the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are bound together in eternal love. In the crucifixion of the Son, the Trinity shares the suffering. The Trinity does not consist of separate parts with separate experiences. This is a little bit of theology for you. The Trinity has no parts. The Trinity is the divine community and the perichoritic dance of love. One of the ways the early church fathers imagined the Trinity is this, this circle dance of Father, Son, and Spirit and a dance of eternal love. And nothing ruptures that love. Adrienne von Speyer, she was a 20th century Swiss physician and mystic. She ended up over her life writing some 60 spiritual works. Her primary vocation was that of a doctor, but she also had her own experiences with God. And she was a close personal friend and influence on the great Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, whom you know I love so much. Adrian von Speyer said this, the suffering on the cross is the expression of the love within God. The expression chosen by God to show his love in order to reveal in order to be able to reveal itself, love suffers. In order to be able to reveal itself. If, in order, God is love, but for love to reveal itself, love suffers. Love hurts. Love scars. Love wounds and mars. Any and every heart. To love someone is to share their suffering so that grief is wounded love. I mean, if you love someone and they're suffering, you suffer with them. This is co-suffering love. Co-suffering love. A term that was, a theological term that was actually coined by my friend, Archbishop Lazar Pujalo. 
co-suffering love. If, if you claim to love someone and they are suffering, but you aren't suffering in sympathy with them, if you aren't feeling some of their pain, you don't love them. And you know this, you know this. Grief is wounded love. So Jesus could not simply come from heaven and spread a message of love, but avoid sharing our suffering. Are you with me? Jesus could not just come from heaven, preach the Sermon on the Mount, tell people that there are two commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, and not suffer. Some of the liberal theology of the late 19th into the 20th century they kind of set forth the idea that, that Jesus came simply to preach this message of love and that the crucifixion was a terrible tragedy, that it was all, somehow it all went wrong. Well, that's, that's, that's just not the case. <laughs> uh, from the moment Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount and intends to actually live it himself, he's on a trajectory that will take him to the cross. His life will demonstrate that violence cannot tolerate the presence of one who owes it nothing. And so Jesus comes as the love of God, the incarnate logos of God's divine love made human, and he preaches the way of love, and he lives the way of love, but he cannot exempt himself from suffering. Because grief is wounded love, and to love something is to share their suffering. True love must share the sufferings with all that is beloved. So, consisting of pure love, God is indeed impassable and beyond all suffering until, until God loves that which suffers because of sin and death then the one who is God must suffer more deeply than any of his creation. God creates because God is love. You have, you have the eternal Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, existing eternally. They don't have any need. They're not lonely. They dwell in perfect love. And yet, if you wanted to use some daring language, maybe you could say the Godhead did need one thing and they needed, the Godhead needed to express love. If you want to say a need, the only need was to express love. And so this is why God says, let there be. And it is because of the love of God that creation itself comes into being. But then, because of the reality of freedom, suffering becomes part of the experience of those whom God loves. God will then participate in suffering with them. So between the, the alpha of creation and the origin of authentic beings and free will and the omega of all things made new, apocalypsis, the restoration of all things. In between, there's suffering, and right in the middle of it stands the towel of the cross where God in Christ suffers with us. God suffers because God is love. Now, once we understand the love of God in this light, 
we can look at the suffering of Christ upon the cross and truly call it a love supreme. It's the love of God, suffering. And we must not imagine the suffering of crucifixion is restricted to the incarnate son. This idea that the suffering of the cross is not restricted to the incarnate son is set forth in daring language by this great theologian, Sergius Bogolkov, 20th century, raised in Russia, son of a priest, became an atheist, a Marxist, and then came to his senses and came back to faith, had a dramatic moment while just walking on the streets of Moscow where something happened and suddenly he, he turned again to faith. Then around 19, I don't know, 20 or so, he had to flee because of the Bolshevik Revolution and did most of his work in Paris. But he, he's truly one of the great ones. I mean, he's, you, know, you talk about Hans Urs von Baldassar, you talk about Karl Barth, and you talk about Bogokov. And he writes in his book, The Lamb of God, in the human crucifixion of the Son, love itself is co-crucified. The crucifixion, that, that line, that's such a power... That's such a powerful line. I don't, I don't want that just to slip by. In the human crucifixion of the Son, you know, the Son is, is the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, we might say in technical language, Son's better. The Son, in, in, in the human crucifixion of the Son, love itself is co-crucified because God is love. Love itself is co-crucified. The crucifixion of the Son takes place on earth but is co-experienced in heaven as well. The entire Holy Trinity is co-crucified with the Son, for God so loved the world. And then he adds this comment. Redemption, like all things in Christianity, must be understood in a Trinitarian manner. Rock on, Bogolkov. You're right. Some press back against that. Some don't like that. I stand by it. So, is... is because you have some theologies where it's actually, just, I, I hate to say this, but it's, oh, it's awful. The idea is that the Father is the one who is inflicting his wrath upon the Son so that he can forgive. Oh, how awful. What a horrible theology. And you know, it's, it's only been around in that form, about 500 years. Hopefully it'll go away. I would say it this way. The cross is the scene of a love supreme, not a scene of divine domestic violence. Derek made mention, to, made mention of the, the parable of the prodigal son, the most beloved of the parables. Some people imagine that God is such that the parable actually needs to read like this. And the father saw the son at a great distance and compassion welled up him and he ran to the servant's quarters where he beat the hell out of a whipping boy to satisfy his wrath. Actually, the whipping boy's his son and then, and then he can come and embrace us. And forget it. No, 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 it's terrible theology. So maybe... Maybe, I'm, I'm doing theology, and, and you're like, maybe you're like, theology. Um, maybe an image will help, an art image. In 1494, Sandro Botticelli completed 
this piece called, it's either called, sometimes it's called Holy Trinity. He didn't give it a name, but sometimes it's called Holy Trinity and sometimes it's called Trinity with Saints. But it was done for an altarpiece in Florence, Italy. So this is during Renaissance. And let's look at this. Let's, it's, it's a bit unusual. It then became kind of a genre, but this is the most well-known of this particular genre. So, you know, you have, okay, you have a crucifixion scene. So Christ is crucified. But there's something unusual going on here. We have heaven and earth both depicted. So you have the sun upon the cross, but then you have God the Father depicted as a man in sorrow tenderly holding the cross and beholding the suffering of his son in great compassion. And then between the father and the son is the dove of the Holy Spirit. So you have the entire Trinity present at the cross. You know, actually, I'm saying things to you that really I only needed to say to academic theologians who make mistakes. Because everybody here knows that any loving father beholding his son crucified would suffer. You didn't even need me to tell you that. But sometimes, you know, I need to put it out there for some theologians to get their act together. So I like this piece because it depicts... The Trinity present. It depicts, as, as Golkoff talks about, about the incarnate Son on earth is crucified, but it is experienced also in heaven with the Father and the Son. And since we have this image, because people are going to ask, so to the right, that's John the Baptist. To the left, that's Mary Magdalene. There are nine cherubs around because Renaissance artists like painting those. <laughs> And then somebody's going to go, well, who are, those, who are those people down there? Well, strangely enough, that's, that's uh, the archangel Raphael and Tobias on their journey, which if you want to read the story, it's in the apocryphal book, Tobit. But better yet, just read On the Road with the Archangel by Frederick Beekner. It's better. So I don't know how they, how they got in there. You have to ask Botticelli that. So... What Botticelli has done in that painting is good theology. He has united heaven and earth in the Trinity at the crucifixion. Because the cross is the wood between the worlds that unites heaven and earth. And the cross is where the world is redeemed by a love supreme. Amen. Amen. Stand up with me. So this week, because I'm urging you to think about the cross, contemplate the cross, meditate on the cross this week, and each Sunday I'll give you a new way of looking at it, a different way. This week, though, whenever you see a cross or think about the cross or read about the cross, I want you to think, a love supreme. And I want you to know that's a love supreme for you. For you. For you, God demonstrates his own love for you and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us it's a love supreme amen and now let's come to
Well, we usually call this communion or the Lord's Supper or the traditional liturgical term is Eucharist, but it's also called a love feast in scripture. It's called a love feast. And it's where the community of the church is invited to participate in the love of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God creates out of love and God suffers because of love. And God gives us through his son, his shed blood and his broken body, he gives us the promise of eternal life. This is what love does. So let's prepare our hearts to come to this table, to this love feast. Let's first confess our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's confess our sins and receive the Lord's pardon. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And now comes the altar call where there's an altar and something on it. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.